0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson
1: And I am Paul R. Henlicky.
0: Welcome to season three of the Queen of the Sciences podcast. Glad to have you along for this brand new year of 2021. And today on the show, our topic is the certainty of faith. Now, we have done episodes before on things like justification by faith and faith to the aid of reason. But I wanted to come back to this one because it seems to me to be a particularly neuralgic point, especially for people who do believe but no longer know quite what that means when they say it um, or how to defend it or articulate it, especially in the face of things like science or the experience of doubt within a faithful life, but also for people out there who, who would like to believe, who somehow admire or envy religious faith and whatever it is or whatever they think it is, is not something that seems accessible to them. So we'll be ranging widely over these topics. So, Dad, there was a particular um, conversation I eavesdropped on, so to speak, that got me thinking about this that I want to tell you about and get your feedback on.
1: <laughs> yes, I'm eager to hear. Tell me your story.
0: Okay. So I was listening to a conversation among a number of people who um, are all Christian believers now self-identified, and they all come from evangelical or pietist type backgrounds. I'm not sure how strongly they would identify with those terms now, but that was kind of like the background of their faith formation. And um, in the process of talking about it, they'd been uh, reading and discussing a uh, a book by someone with a similar evangelical background. And clearly, for all of them, what they had always thought faith was was really not working for them anymore. And what came to the forefront. Was especially that faith somehow meant like faith in faith, like it was a convicted mental state. And by possessing this convicted, convinced mental state about God, you were therefore a believer and in a right relationship with God. And There were two problems with this for where they were now in life. One was that it had somehow been a limiting factor in their mercy towards unbelievers or non-Christians because they didn't have this convinced mental state that they did. Um, But then secondly, life itself kind of took it out of them. And they realized that they they couldn't perform internally, mentally, emotionally, intellectually in any way this conviction, convincingness that was required of them. So that itself was was quite interesting to me because it was it was familiar to me I, I mean if not I don't mean primarily in a personal way, but like I've heard this problem before for people who come out of that kind of background. But what was really striking to me is that this uh, book that they'd been reading to kind of help process this as a a sort of emerging out of evangelical scholar wrote it was that um, he was pointing out things like, you know, historical critical method or science or things like this that basically were undermining Also, the perceived content of the faith that they had to be convinced about. And so he was kind of pushing for this more modern, postmodern, responsible uncertainty and not... Holding so tightly to these things of the past. So, but what really struck me about this, of course, this is way more familiar as kind of, you know, typical, the typical liberal Protestant move. But what I realized, Dad, at the core of it is that both this evangelical Protestantism and the liberal Protestantism it seems to lead to both operate on this convinced mental model of what faith is. And in evangelicalism, the content you have to be convinced about is really high and heavy and expansive, like there's a lot you have to assent to. And the way liberal Protestantism fixes it is by just continually dropping the number of things you need to believe in (laughs) until you finally get to a low enough bar that you can say, all right, sure, I can go for that. There's a ground of ultimate being, (laughs) you know, and then and then you've solved the problem, but you've only solved it from the content side in the process. You've lost everything of value. But uh, I don't think I'd ever seen so clearly before that the problem in both cases is not going after what the model of faith is. Is so that's kind of my starting point, and I would like to hear you first react to that, and then we'll we'll move forward from there.
1: Well, yeah, Sarah, that's re- really good analysis, and it's a good di- diagnosis of the problem as well. There was a, a good reason why Schleiermacher was called a Moravian of a higher order, <laughs> because of course Moravians were the Pietists, the German evangelical Pietists of the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries and schleiermacher comes out of that uh, pietist uh, tradition and uh, he goes exactly through this process that you're talking about with the enlightenment critique and the rise of historical criticism he finds it's 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 intellectually irresponsible and impossible for him to affirm the old dogmas of the church, which he rejects in any case as being uh, objectifications that uh, of God, inappropriate objectifications of God in cognitive formulations as if they were equivalent to scientific statements. So there's that, and there's also his uh, retention of the pietistic tradition in the sense that religion is really a, a state of, uh, of, of, of feeling, as he calls it, of absolute dependence. And so in a way, this feeling of absolute dependence is invulnerable to criticism because everybody's got it. And how they articulate it, of course, is historically variable, but it really doesn't depend on the object of faith As that can be articulated in a doctrine or a dogma of the church or something like that. So, as long as you can cultivate a sense of inner spirituality, in other words, a feeling of some kind of ultimacy in your life, right, that's then uh, sufficient for a, a religiously serious life for Schleiermacher.
0: So, Schleiermacher is the first I'm spiritual, not religious guy.
1: Yeah, I would you know, not that's a little bit too simple because he said that any actual historical religion is always connected to a community of faith with its tradition. And so he can talk specifically about the Christian tradition uh, where everything is related to the redemption which is in Christ Jesus and so forth and so on. Um, so he's not—he's, he, you know, he's not um, a 20th century postmodern <laughs> spiritual, but not religious type.
0: Yeah, but he seems like he's got to be the fountainhead. I mean, I—I I don't. His, I, I took a, a graduate seminar in Schleiermacher, and it seemed to me like everybody loved him. And I was like, I don't get this. This is totally bogus. This—this this is not going to go anywhere good. So I don't know. But saying Schleiermacher just gets my hackles up. Sorry. <laughs>
1: You know, with my friend Christine Helmer, uh, who who was is something of a Schleiermacher scholar herself, at one point as I was uh, ranting and raving along the lines you just did, she <laughs> commented dryly, uh, "Lutherans should just never read Schleiermacher on the cross, never, never, never." <laughs>
0: All right. Well, she would know. I'll take her word for it. <laughs>
1: right. Well, anyway, getting back to the the problem that you've introduced, of course, in the Lutheran theological tradition, faith is an extraordinarily important emphasis. Of course, it's also a little bit elusive, elusive, hard to get a precise grip on, uh, because it seems it seemed to Catholic critics that Luther's emphasis on faith and faith alone that justifies was a, a, a turn away from the object of faith to pure human subjectivity. So you can't really blame it on Schleiermacher for the Catholic critics. <laughs> it goes all the way back to Luther. Luther turns away from the objectivity of revelation, the objectivity of the church as which receives the deposit of faith and safeguards it and hands it on and preserves it and actually magisterially articulates it for for the believers who are not capable of doing this for themselves. Luther rejects that objectivity of faith, according to them, and so opens the road that leads through the pietism, through Schleiermacher, into the contemporary crisis of faith that you artic- that you described at the beginning.
0: Yes, I'm well familiar with this criticism. I mean, I am I, reluctant to lay it at Luther's feet, but I can tell you're saying most of this in air quotes. So please continue.
1: <laughs> right. Well, it's just acknowledging the critique. And I think there's not a few Lutherans who actually, you know, mistakenly and badly uh, theologically understand luther this way and celebrate it you know luther breaks up, breaks us out of all ecclesiastical commitments and all dogmatic commitments and allows each of us to make up our faith on our own isn't that just great isn't luther uh, decentralizing uh, uh, Christian faith, and isn't he declericalizing Christian faith? And isn't he liberating us from having. To, someone said to me, here's the difference between a Catholic and a Protestant. A Catholic, when they uh, are catechized, say, gee, look at all the cool stuff we get to believe. And a Protestant, when catechized, says, you mean I have to believe all this stuff? <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't know. I think that the tips uh, for the scales for Catholics have been headed in the opposite direction, but that that's a separate conversation. Yeah,
1: yeah I know. But I, I suppose they're talking about converts, you know, adult converts. Ah. Okay. But anyway, so look at this is, we're just kind of clearing the decks here from a lot of popular detritus that gets in the way of our topic. Um, I think the fundamental thing you have to understand for uh, Luther's theology of faith is that it consoles and it comforts, because faith rests, cozies up on the lap of, and goes to sleep. Faith rests in Christ and what Christ has done for me and for the world. And that's the certainty of faith. Faith is never self-reflective. Faith never looks at me, myself, and I and interrogates. Do I truly have it, whatever it is thought to be? Faith rather reflects critically. Do I have Christ? Is Christ and Christ alone the object of my fear, love, and trust above all? is Christ the one in whom I rest because he has done the decisive work for me? And the certainty of faith, therefore, is never in a self-reflection on my interiority. That would be a kind of introspection that leads to this um, uh, crisis of doubt that you described in your ex-evangelical friend that uh, the objectivity of faith is dissolving under science and historical criticism. And so the certainty of faith is collapsing. I don't feel that state of certainty in myself anymore, that uh, invincible and vulnerable feeling of being beyond all doubt. And therefore, uh, my faith itself must uh, now be diluted in the ways you were talking about, if it's to survive at all. But that's exactly the opposite of Luther's basic counsel on faith. Turn away from yourself and behold Christ in the joyful exchange, who appears in word and sacraments to say, I am your righteousness, take me and give me your sin. I am your life, take me and give me your death, etc.,
0: yeah, so I I think that's basically right, and one one reason I think that's right is because Luther, if you read him expansively, you see that he is is truly a pastor in the sense of trying to address people in their doubts, and he he doesn't go after people who are doubting, he finds ways to build them up, and um, so for instance, he says, you know, if you're doubting, please go spend some time with your friends and have a good laugh and have a good beer, and you know, if if you're if you you're doubting spend time with the scripture and go to worship and sing and you know he he really puts an emphasis not on shaming of someone struggling with doubts but putting them in a place where they can be dealt with but i think we do have to acknowledge that there is some some strain i mean it's we it's it's easy to misinterpret as a, a modern or postmodern or scientific thing but luther does say his famous slogan so Zo glaubst du so habst du if you believe it you have it or to the extent that you believe it to that extent you have it. And I think for the the reason this is really hard is because it's it's making it sound like you have to trick yourself into believing it or you're left with nothing. I think he means it more as a as an actual observation of what it feels like which is that you cannot enjoy the fruits of the gospel unless you believe the fruits of the gospel that the the belief is the point of access between the promises of Christ and your own personal life. That's where he's emphasizing it against a a rote or external or formalized. Again, it's hard not to hear these in modern ways. Um, but uh the you could say the receptive faculty for god the the point of connection where the um you know the hinge meets the joint or I don't know anything about work woodworking that's probably a bad analogy, you know but that that is what faith actually is, but it's very important to disambiguate that from the way those words are going to develop in future centuries
1: I, I think yes, fundamentally the observation to be made here that I was listening to you, Sarah, and I'm thinking to myself, is this Sarah making an argument for general anthropology, that uh, faith is kind of this <laughs> na- natural connection to God? And No, I don't think so. I don't think that's what you meant. Uh, I'm no. right about that, correct? <laughs>
0: yes, yes. Don't worry. No. Don't worry. An alien okay. hasn't come and replaced me.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: No, it's I'm talking about specifically when Luther is arguing against other things being receivers of God's word. Like he does this in two kinds of righteousness or the freedom of a Christian. It's actually faith is the thing that receives the the word and promise of God. It's that's why he says it's not like quote unquote good works that receive the promise of God and therefore make you right. That's yeah, I that's, think the that's the point a, of contrast. You have to
1: exactly always discern the antithesis. You always have to figure out what's being negated in any particular affirmation to make sense. And when Luther talks about faith as the specific rece- receptivity, he's a, the, the reference is to Christ in his saving work for sinners. That's, that's the reference. How do you get Christ in his saving work for sinners? You don't do anything. You simply receive it. You simply rest in it you let Christ do his work of redeeming sinners in you. You allow that to happen. That's why he calls it vita passiva, of a, a passive life in which Christ is the doer and you are the recipient of the deed. And that's what faith is. It's that galassenheit. It's that letting go and letting Christ be Christ in your life for you personally, etc., uh, along those lines. Now, This also clarifies why, uh, again, another kind of criticism of Luther's view of faith comes from the Reformed tradition, or or the uh, Anabaptist tradition, that this uh, turns faith into a lazy, quietistic thing that uh, does nothing, Uh, that uh, it it disables human agency, which then becomes the criticism of Luther in. Uh, Karl Marx and Herbert Marcuse and uh, figures like this, Thomas Mann and so forth in the German tradition. But the point of denying works is so that it's not our self-invented works aimed at our own justification that we are doing, but rather Christ's work of creative agape love that I, as a recipient of, by faith alone, by passive faith, trusting in Christ to do this, then in turn I become actively an agent of Christ's own creative agape love for others. And so faith is then a living, mighty, active thing that is ceaselessly at work, because it is precisely in faith Christ's work that takes hold of the believer and extends itself uh, through his or her life.
0: Yeah, I think that's where you see absolutely why for Luther, faith is the action and gift of the Holy Spirit and brings Christ to live in a person. And I think once you get to that point, you realize that faith cannot be uh, either a lazy, quietistic thing, as that accusation goes, but it also can't be purely my, my mental states because, you know, we all have minds. We know how uh, fraught and unstable they are all the time. And to depend in any way on them is, is a terrible idea. But if Luther's doctrine of the true presence carries out in all areas of his theology, as it certainly does, then you see it has to actually be the active agent here, too, in faith. And that, that can also relieve some of this burden of anxiety of, do I have it or don't I? It's like, well, it, Luther would say, you have been baptized. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell in you. So, you know, that that is, that is the point where you say, do I have it or not? Yes, because the Holy Spirit is active in me. Now, It does not mean that it has turned your mental state into what you would like it to be? And we can move into that as well. But uh, yeah, that I think that cuts off the, the, the really dangerous interpretations of faith.
1: Many years ago, when I was a seminary student and wrestling with these kinds of questions, a wise professor uh, said to me, Paul, don't you realize that no one else worries about whether they have faith or not? Only a person who is taken hold of by the Spirit worries about whether they have faith or not. So take some comfort and consolation in that, that the battle of the Spirit against the flesh is already operative in your life. And if that's the case, then don't think you've got to do something that the Holy Spirit has promised to do. Just let go and let sin no more reign in your mortal bodies at Romans 6 and all that wonderful stuff there rest in christ and let the Spirit act.
0: Yeah, that's really wonderful, especially because what he was telling you is that as the presence of the Holy Spirit does not mean an easy, unconcerned, unchallenged mental space, it actually means a battle (laughs) against all that is still sinful and wicked within us. And so it's actually the presence of tumult in the mental state that can be a sign of of the Holy Spirit's work rather than, um, you know, lazy certainty or something like that.
1: You know, I I used to, in these early years of my theological thinking, uh, I took a lot of uh, comfort and strength from Paul Tillich's interpretation of these issues, because Tillich pointed out, you know, that doubt is a part of faith. You can't take the outrageous claims of Christian doctrine seriously if you don't intellectually engage them in a way that questions them. And when you question them, of course, you enter into at least a process of, of, that can be called doubting, right? It's a matter of understanding what—you don't really believe a doctrine of faith, an articulation of faith, unless you, at least in a meaningful way, understand it. You can't affirm it or deny it if you don't understand it. And in order to understand it, you have to question it. And that means you have to expose it to criticism, expose it to doubt. This is part of the process of of growing from a childish belief, uh, the kind of belief that we celebrated christmas time by putting children into the christmas pageants as shepherds and angels and donkeys and cattle and and mary and joseph and the wise men and the shepherds you know that it's a it's a wonderful stage of life and i'm not trying to debunk it at all but it's childish and when you become an adult you have to you have to go through the critical process of questioning those beliefs if you're going to Affirm them in any sense whatsoever. So Tillich was very, yeah, Tillich was very good on this uh, when he taught me that only the one who believes, the only, only the one who believes genuinely doubts. The doubt mm. and belief uh, are dialectically related to each other.
0: What I chiefly like about that is because I often hear people talk about faith purely as trust and they really want to push away from the the content that is trusted or the person, the, the claims about the God who is trusted. And it seems to me that what Tillich is saying is that part of, of grown up faith is actually wrestling with the contents in order to find it trustworthy, not simply dropping that part and having a, a generic. I don't know if that's what Tillich actually said, but that's how I would read it in the most favorable light.
1: Yes, let me just comment on that. I think you're right, and I think Tillich is superior to a lot of his uh, latter-day imitators, and so Mm. forth. Let's just—I don't want to get overly polemical there. Yes, you're right about that. I think.
0: (laughs) Okay, but so, but I'm I'm curious now, and maybe this can help us move towards the question of our own time, because I, I I think that's right. But that might be where I sit in history when the New Testament, for example, talks about certainty or full assurance of faith. Do you think it has those texts and apostles have in mind that same kind of engagement with doubt and wrestling or are they of, a don't know, a, a different place, I don't know, historically or in the development of Christianity that they can talk about full assurance in a way that just is not accessible to us now?
1: Yes, I think you're right about what you're suggesting there. Uh, though I do think you see in the Gospel of John, which we'll be talking about in a couple of sessions, and uh, also already in Paul the Apostle, there's a wrestling. Uh, there's an intellectual wrestling with the cognitive claims of faith. Uh, and uh, well, I think that's already there in the New Testament. There's Uh, There is not simply naive dogmatism in the New Testament. After all, you know, even the first gospel, the gospel of Mark, which we discussed some time ago in chapter 13, points out, many will come in my name saying, I am he. Do not believe them. All right. That means you have to discern. You have to say, what is the authentic object of faith? And who is the pseudo-Messiah and who is the pseudo-Prophet? In the first chapter of the letter to Galatians, Paul says, uh, uh, if I or anyone else should give you some other gospel than the gospel which you received, let them be anathema. That means you have to critically discern what is the authentic gospel and what is the uh, uh, false substitute for it. 1 John 4, 1 do not believe every spirit, test the spirits to see whether they are of God, right? So critical thinking about the object of faith is already there in the New Testament. And I think if the only the only difference in our modern or postmodern situation is that we have been through uh, the rise of critical thinking and the uh, historical criticism of the Bible. These are accomplished facts, just like the discovery of the heliocentric order that we now call our solar system. You you can't go back behind that to a three-story universe. It's just not possible. Uh, And you have to take the primitive Christian gospel and the beliefs embedded in it, through criticism to what I like to call critical dogmatics or a kind of a post-critical articulation of the content of faith,
0: so do you think that means that that the kind of full assurance that's mentioned, like in the book of Hebrews, that's, Whatever it means now it can't mean the same thing as it meant before that critical passage. I'm just curious cuz like I can see the, I can see the 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 edge that you just described of the testing of the spirits. Like that seems to me, you know, perfectly clear in the New Testament, but there seems to be a a, a positive flip side to it of being totally convinced. And I guess having seen the the damage done to people religiously today who cannot Generate or feel maybe who desperately long for that kind of full assurance, but there's just there's too many other options out there, and to to gain that that feeling, whether it's emotional or intellectual, would be simply to shut out too much of reality.
1: Yeah, that's a whole a whole new set of issues you've raised there, Sarah. Very good. We have to now kind of move the registrar of our discussion up an octave. Uh, Because we have to (laughs) recognize. (laughs) Uh, I I was speaking metaphorically.
0: Oh, oh, sorry. Sorry. Uh,
1: Okay. Um, We have to recognize that we are articulating beliefs about God. And we therefore are doing exactly uh, what Schleiermacher objected to. We are, in some sense, turning God into an object of our knowledge. Uh, And so whatever the doctrine is, the doctrine of the virgin birth, the doctrine of the atonement, the doctrine of the second coming in glory, you know, take your pick, the doctrine of creation, whatever uh, uh, knowledge of God we are trying to articulate is knowledge of God, who cannot simply be the object of our cognition the way physical forces can be in an experiment in physics, or electromagnetic forces can be in an experiment, or biochemical processes can be in an experiment. Uh, God is not an object alongside other objects. God is not a creature alongside other creatures. God is categorically the creator of everything that's not God. And so God objectively transcends all our categories of interpretation. How then shall we ever articulate knowledge of God? We have to recognize this is a genuine problem. And it's not simply the problem of the rise of science or historical criticism. Uh, It's the problem that God, if we have a true and worthy conception of God, namely the one true God is the creator categorically of everything that's not God, if we have such a worthy conception of God, we have to first of all throw up our hands in utter humility and dismay and say it's impossible for me, a sinful and finite creature, to say anything of certainty about the infinite majesty of the Creator. We have to begin there, recognizing that for humans to speak knowledgeably about God in articulate Christian doctrinal statements, it seems like an impossible task. Are you with me?
0: Oh yeah, well, and I see you see that this apophatic tradition is across religions and has very ancient roots. Though at the same time, you also see all of them experiencing some kind of breakthrough that might be called like revelation, for example, of the Torah on Mount Sinai or the revelation in the incarnation of Christ who takes a form of God that can be actually encountered and dealt with more like an object among other objects in the world. But I think that apophatic tradition is is incredibly ancient. We shouldn't think that it's a product of science by any means.
1: Right. And it's, 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 it's a, we find it all through the Bible as well uh, the burning bush story, et cetera. Okay. So, good. So, the next step is exactly the one you indicated, Sarah. The, the, Sarah in the classical religions, uh, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, there's also always a cataphatic movement, a, a revelation if it's impossible for sinful and finite human beings to speak truthfully of God, God must reveal God's self and give himself to be known uh, in the event of revelation. And this was, of course, the great post-critical insight of Karl Barth, is the real problem of the certainty of faith is not The criticisms of the historians, or the Enlightenment, the real problem of the certainty of faith is that God is not a capturable object. I can't grab hold of God and put him in a nice little box of my uh, philosophical or theological notions. Uh, God is always, uh, Bart put it this way, even in becoming an object for us to know in faith god always remains the subject even in becoming an object for us to know in faith god remains the subject and bart i think had a brilliant procedure based on this that theology can never rest content with its accumulated knowledge of god as if it were simply a settled fact that we could now move on from the theologian encounters God ever anew, freshly in the event of God's self-revelation. Why? Because God remains the subject, even in the event of giving himself to be known. So there's nothing for the theologian to do but continually, in prayer and humility, start fresh, Now, of course, you remember and you discern critically your own previous history with God. It's not like you just wipe that out and ignore it, you know, but you also don't fix it into some kind of uh, uh, idol, as though uh, you could simply go back to the homoousius of the Nicene Creed or the sola fide of the Lutheran confessions and say, that's it, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, end of discussion. And the reason why you can't do that is that God does not allow God to be domesticated that way by your ecclesiastical tradition uh, and your ambition to, to master God so that you are in control rather than
0: God. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, it's it's really, a in a way, a radicalization of Luther's third article of the creed explanation. I believe that I cannot believe by my own understanding or strength, but the Holy Spirit has called me. I mean, that's that is that is the Holy Spirit. That is God as the subject of all things. And and although you've articulated this as a, a critique of a certain way of doing theology, I think the flip side is real comfort for people like I described at the beginning, who who have um, perhaps an unarticulated and unrecognized. Doctrine of God that he has shown himself and then sat back and said, All right. So you believe it or you don't believe it. And then on hmm. the side of the human, it's up to assent and feel, or be unable to assent and unable to feel. And then you're kind of stuck in your, again, in, in your mental state thing, quite opposed to a uh, 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 Lutheran and, and Bardian understanding that God is the actor and the subject and is coming after you and is entangling your life in his, in order to make his presence known. And you know, there that is um, terrifying in <laughs> one one sense but at least it gets you out of this trap about your mental state.
1: Of course it does and it also makes theology an exciting intellectual adventure that you're never done with it. In all eternity you'll never be done with it. You'll always in, uh, heaven is every creature in its own unique and special way growing forever in the knowledge of God an infinite ocean that can never be exhausted. And that for us theologians that adventure begins now right it, it 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 really is
0: so you're saying dad that when every when we get to heaven everybody gets to be a theologian well <laughs> we, of course we might a have theolo- a lot of people peeling off of faith if that's the case <laughs>
1: <laughs> i don't know about that i think that if you under, i i used to say this when i was a pastor everybody in their own in their own vocation, Christian vocation life, you all think theologically. You all try yeah, to think true. your faith in relationship to your, your calling in life. And that is at various levels of expertise and depth and so forth and so on, of course. But everyone in their own way is involved in faith's knowledge of God.
0: So, um, so I mean, I, I really like this this Bardian understanding um, of of God as as the actor, but I think one of the simple realities of where we live in history is that it's just it is, let's say plausible to a degree it never was before that even this assertion of Barthes, is pure fiction. It's the hangover of the past, and we'd love to have it still because it's comforting to think that there's a God who cares for us. But if it's something that you cannot actually access directly because you claim it's outside of, of all stuff and things and being, but then you do get to it through some kind of cataphatic revelation, but then there are all these different revelations and they disagree with each other, and then you look at the sources of those revelations. and uh, So for For example, C.S. Lewis made this famous comment once that... um Either Jesus was a complete certifiable lunatic, or he was exactly what he said he was. And if you look at the way the stories about of the Gospels unfold, it's clear he's not a lunatic. Therefore, he must be who he said he was. And I know a lot of people who have struggled with this have taken comfort in that. But Lewis does not mention a third possibility, which is that the Gospels don't have any real contact with the real Jesus. They are ex post facto fictions by traumatized people who need to reassure themselves because they put their eggs in the wrong baskets. And it has spawned 2000 years of confusion and delusion. And I think the fact is even for someone who is a believer today or wants to be a believer today, you cannot excise that possibility. So you're still stuck going back to these, you know, fragmentary, well I, well, I don't know. There's more about Jesus than practically anyone else of his time, but still, you know, these are ancient documents. You cannot subject the story of Jesus to scientific analysis today. There's nobody there with a you know Geiger counter to see if Jesus let off radiation or something. <laughs> so, um, I, so I think I mean part of the the, the difficulty that is for people is that there uh, like as a there is a plausibility to saying all of it is a lie. I think to a degree that has just never existed before in human history.
1: Yeah, well, I think a lot of that is is simply the outworking of a hostile interpretation of early Christianity that's been gathering steam for the last several hundred years in high culture. Uh, this is really nothing new. David Friedrich Strauss' Life of Jesus, in the, published in the 1830s or 40s, you know, and you can go back further uh, in the uh, uh, Enlightenment tradition to very hostile interpretations of Christianity that were arising already. There, you know, so the the in in one sense you have to fight history with history. Uh, you can't. You're right. I mean, the plausibility uh, implausibility problem that you're talking about is a real world outcome of several centuries of hostile criticism uh, of, uh, of primitive Christianity and its influence in history. And uh, with the growth and uh, power of that hostile criticism, uh, you know, a lot of people find, find, find that, okay, well, that's what the experts are saying nowadays. And I'm afraid the only uh, uh, reply to that is that good history has to overcome bad history. Good criticism has to overcome bad criticism. Uh, There's no going back to a naive reading uh, of the New Testament that was uh, created by the Protestant doctrine of verbal and inerrant inspiration of scripture. Uh, There's there's no going back behind that. Behind that, to some kind of uh, invulnerable certainty of belief in that respect. There's only a way of countering hostile criticism with what George Lindbeck called ad hoc apologetics, uh, defending the Christian faith against unjust, unfair, unwarranted uh, attacks.
0: Mm-hmm. So I think what what's really becoming clear is that when we talk about certainty of faith for people in the twenty first century, it's not recapturing either the childhood or the pre critical sense of certainty that was available then. You know, part of part of the sorrows of adulthood are realizing that that uh, that those comforts of childhood are gone forever. You're stuck being an adult, and it's never going to be undone. But that what certainty of faith today has to mean is something that is definitely post critical. It is adult. There's a lot of heavy lifting. There's probably a lot of pain and loss involved. And that's just I don't know. It's where we are. (laughs) And I think it's harmful to people not to let them in on that. But of course, it's pretty hard, especially if you're talking to someone who's new to faith or doesn't have any habit or experience of religion to say, you know, um, yes, we believe this. But let me tell you a little something about JEDP or Q or, you know, (laughs) I'm kidding. You know, you never start there, but you you can't ever. um, There's just there's, there's a lot. <laughs> I well, ran Sarah, out of steam there. But but <laughs> I,
1: I think there is a way to start that is more helpful uh, than the old uh, idea of uh, the plenary inspiration of the Bible that I just criticized. That's Luther's insight, and this is also a historical critical insight. The entire New Testament, as we have it, is written from the perspective of Easter faith. There's no memory of Jesus that survives whatsoever, that is not uh, uh, accessed and therefore filtered through faith in his resurrection or the proclamation of his resurrection and the faith that that creates in uh, the first and earliest believers. So, the Um, And what that plays out into the life of the church is that if you are a Christian at all, when you gather around the word and sacraments of Christ, it is in the Easter faith that Jesus is alive and not dead, and that in this promised way, he continues to make himself present for His believing people to uh, strengthen and nurture and encourage and comfort their faith, which, by the way, has its own kind of verification in the fact that whoever uh, believes uh, in the word of the risen Christ spoken through word and sacraments, therefore takes upon her or himself the cross of Jesus and counts the cost of faith that faith is this being conformed to the cross and resurrection of Christ. And that comes at a certain uh, price of existential depth and seriousness. Uh, If you're thinking that faith is going to take, as we said earlier, the doubt out of your life, you're wrong, it's also not going to preserve you from trouble, sorrow, pain, what Luther called the Holy Cross. It's going to lay that on you.
0: I like that you put so much emphasis there on on word and sacrament and community because I think one of the the products of um, you know what's popularly called the Enlightenment is um, a, a, a notion that all problems can be solved by thought and argumentation and rational, rational intellection. And I think that maybe we're seeing a tip in another direction towards realizing that is only one very narrow view of what knowledge is, much less human experience. And I think for theologians, we were often perceived as being pure rationalists, but I think it's really important to insist that theology happens in the context of church life and practice, and that actually you are are not going to believe and you are not going to be convinced unless you are also participating in the church's sacraments, in its worship, in its singing, in its fellowship. And um, I, I think there's a, a kind of rationalistic strain that remains that says, aha, so you're going to be brainwashed by your cultic community behavior. That's certainly one take you could have on it. Or you can say, actually, knowledge is so great and human experience is so much more than only a set of argumentations that you. You cannot possibly even understand your arguments correctly unless they're properly embedded in all this other stuff as well. And that that's actually the, the intellectual argument I would want to advance is that intellectuality is better done when it includes all these other aspects of human knowing, thinking, feeling, perceiving.
1: Yeah, and it's also true that the church gathered around word and sacrament is not some kind of self-insulating ghetto. You know, the church gathers on the Lord's Day uh, uh, in order to be renewed and strengthened in in faith in order to go out into the world from Sunday, from Monday to uh, Saturday, and uh, be Christ to to the neighbor in the world. And in the world, you meet the agnostic, you meet the atheist, you meet the Jew, the Muslim, the Hindu, all sorts of folks. Right. And, and and you uh, encounter them also, you know, in the imperative of, of the gospel to love your neighbor as yourself, and you encounter in person there uh, living religious difference, religious pluralism, uh, and uh, all these questions of science and, and so forth, you meet in your neighbors out there, and you have loving and human relationships with them. Now here I want to tell you an anecdote here that I think is really powerful about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's first encounter with Karl Barth because Bonhoeffer was educated you know in Berlin uh, and uh, he was a student of Adolf von Harnack and Karl Karl Hull and and so he was being educated in this great German liberal Protestant tradition of historical criticism and uh, unfortunately for that tradition, he, under the influence of Hull, he got deeply engaged in the study of uh, Luther texts and be- <laughs> and became a Lutheran theologian under that impact. Uh, but he had all these prejudices. Karl Barth is a Swiss. He's reformed. He's He doesn't even have a PhD. You know, he's just an upstart and a wild man. And you know there was a great literary debate between Harnack and Bart, in which Harnack accused Bart of rejecting all science and instituting a new dogmatism, taking us back to the Inquisition, and all this kind of stuff. And so Bonhoeffer has absorbed all of these attacks on Bart, but he likes what he's reading in Bart, and so he decides to journey to uh, to. Um, to uh, I think Bart was still in Germany. This is before uh, thirty-seven, um, and he attends Bart's seminar, and he was going in there expecting to see this dogmatist laying down the law, saying this is what you will believe, and everyone else is going to hell, and he's instead he's exposed to the most intellectual curiosity he's ever seen. The guy is just uh, synapses are firing. He's asking all sorts of questions. He's curious about everything. His, his uh, church dogmatics in formation, his new approach to theology is not a platform that shuts down the rest of the world. It's a platform that opens up the rest of the world. That was Bonhoeffer's experience and why he uh, overcame those uh, hoity-toity German-Lutheran prejudices against Bart. <laughs> and a, a second little anecdote in this respect. I just, prior to our recording this, I got off the Zoom with a, a, a German theologian I liked very much, Christoph Schwobel, uh, who's left Tübingen and is now teaching at St. Andrews in Scotland. And uh, Christoph and I were getting caught up and sharing some stories. And he's a very jovial fellow with a wonderful sense of humor. And he said to me, you know, I like most my relationships with Jews and Muslims. It's wonderful to talk to them because unlike all my theological friends in Germany, they really want to talk about God. (laughs) (laughs) and of course god is the biggest problem and therefore the unescapable problem of theology as such so you know again the certainty of faith finally it comes down to whether you're talking about the one who claims to be the one true god the creator of all that's not God, the one therefore I can never capture in my own ideas, but who mercifully makes himself known to me in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that I can become a child of God. That means an inquirer, a questioner, you know, a healthy child is constantly pummeling the parent with why, 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 right? Right, right, right. And you have to have a God big enough to take that kind of pummeling. That's the that's the certainty of faith. It's the dialogue that you have. I just wrote an article for a, a chapter for a book on prayer in which I picked up this idea that you were talking about a minute ago that that theology is located in the church, and the church, of course, is the body of Christ at prayer.
0: You know, I'm really struck at how often our conversations about a specific topic come back to the realization that the problem is a faulty doctrine of God and that we need to re-articulate who God is and what kind of God he is, that he's the God of the gospel who comes out after us. And setting that back at the center often um, reorients the problem as we perceive it within the, the particular topic. So I guess then what we would want to say to people who, who want to believe, wish they could believe, find themselves unable to believe that the, uh, the answer is to keep following the questions and keep pressing them on, on God, even if you don't think God is there to hear them, keep asking God those questions. And that for Christian witnesses who are, you know, there to be, um, Helpers along the way for someone who's struggling with faith is your job is not to convince them or talk them into it. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But you know, to receive the the questions openly and honestly in the in the certainty that the Holy Spirit can do the work in the end.
1: Yeah, you see, it's a dialectic. You can't get underway without basic trust in the gospel promises, uh, but once you enter into trust in the gospel promises, you're questioning everything. And that questioning then ever and again comes to rest. Uh, uh, If it's faith, it comes to rest in Christ. And it's just an ongoing event in a human life that is a living history with a living God. I would really like to stress that, that that's the kind of certainty that you can have. Uh, that you can project your Christian, intellectually project your Christian life as one that is a uh, uh, never-ending inquiry into God. That's That's the certainty that you have.
0: Wonderful. All right. I think we'll stop there. And next time on the show, we will be taking another stab at the lectionary.